We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded throughout the unceded territory of California, home to nearly 200 tribal nations. As we begin this episode, we acknowledge and honor the original inhabitants of our various regions. A land acknowledgement is a critical step towards working with Native communities to secure meaningful partnership and inclusion in the stewardship and protection of their cultural resources and homelands. Let's take a moment to honor the stolen ancestral grounds that we are now collectively gathered upon and support the resilience and strength that all Indigenous people have shown worldwide. Liberty Hill is proud to work with organizations deeply rooted in Indigenous communities to uplift and fight for Indigenous rights on a host of important issues. The advice is to see it as a long game and stick with it. But I actually think the progress can be made more quickly than people may realize or appreciate. And that particularly people who look at the quantification of these issues. And I used to practice law. One of our legal advisors says he, he always knew what the right thing to do was by looking at what his, the opposing side was doing, doing the opposite, right? <laughs> so the extent to which expanding democracy and civic participation in voting is fundamental to the transformation of this country can be gleaned by how much time, energy, and effort is put into stopping people from voting. And the hundreds of bills that are put forward to anything that expanded civic participation in 2020 is now under attack. Justice takes many forms and many hands. I'm Shane Murphy-Goldsmith, President and CEO of Liberty Hill Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to Season 2 of Conversations from the Front Lines, where we tackle some of the most challenging social justice issues of the day with heart and honesty. This season, we're focusing on the topic of power, politics, and solidarity in L.A. We've gathered some of L.A.'s frontline political and community leaders to go behind the scenes of the fights for social change, the efforts to build community power, and the work to increase solidarity across movements. Get ready for some frank conversations and real talk on Conversations from the Frontlines. In our first episode of season two, I'm joined by New York Times bestselling author and national political thought leader, Steve Phillips. This episode was recorded live at SoCal Grantmakers 2023 policy conference titled Reimagine Multiracial Democracy. SoCal Grantmakers, where I'm the co-chair of the board, is a network of philanthropists and grantmakers working to shift power and resources toward frontline communities. Now get ready for some frank conversations and real talk on conversations from the front lines. First of all, I love this book. I have proof. I read it. And part of what I loved about it is that you presented both the equally powerful examples of how the Confederate fight for white supremacy and against democracy continues to be waged every day and incredibly powerful examples of these level five leaders, as you said, who um, are on the front lines turning the tide every single day. And you paint a really vivid picture of really what we're up against. But I wonder about, you know, for people who may have critiques of wokeness, it sort of belies this concern that maybe we're focusing too much on race, you know, or maybe we're centering race too much. Why are we still talking about it? Or why is it important to frame things in that way? And actually, the I was thinking about the Tennessee example is a good one where mainstream media has certainly picked up on <laughs> the racism there and, you know, many of the problems, but I haven't really heard it put in the historical perspective of the Confederacy. So just want to ask you to elaborate on why is it so important to understand the current 
threats in the context of this unfinished battle for the Confederacy that continues on today? How does that change what we do today to understand that historical context? So I would take maybe two or three things on that. So this phrase, choice between democracy and whiteness, so that comes from Taylor Branch, who wrote the Parting the Water civil rights book. So he was in continents recounted in Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. And they were talking about the rise in uh, white domestic terrorism, and particularly rise of white domestic terrorism in 2017, 2018. And so there were all these alarms that had been raised about the Central American caravan right before the midterm elections, a way to try to inject fear, get people to turn out um, in that election. And the Tree of Life synagogue mass shooting happened on the Friday of that week when they started that caravan drumbeat on that Sunday and Monday. And he specifically said before he got his guests, I'm going in, I'm not going to let you, just going to stand by. And so there was very much fear of the country being taken over. And so this fear, and that's why I say is truly an existential battle around, is this going to be primarily a country for whites where others may be tolerated, or is it going to be a multiracial democracy? And so that fanning the flames of white people about the changing composition of the country, I would argue, is the primary driving feature and factor in our civic life and certainly in our political life. And so in 2015, so we forget now, we've lived through the past seven, you know, eight years, that originally Donald Trump was seen as more of a joke in that and Obama made fun of him at the dinner they had. He was polling at 4% in the polls in May of 2015. June of 2015, he announces his candidacy and says that Mexicans are rapists and murderers. Gets all of this backlash, stands up against that, sends a very strong signal that he will be the champion of fearful white people. And he went from 4% of the polls to 27% of the polls and never looked back. And the, I would argue, if you look at what's happening on the Republican side with Ron DeSantis trying to get to the side of him. So it's not fundamentally a question in terms of people of color. It's people that question that white, there are a lot of white people and a lot of fear and resentment that is fanned and fomented in the country that drives whites to oppose anything that has to do with multiracial democracy. So that's why we have to get at this issue because it, it informs everything. It was the fundamental basis of the opposition to universal health care is that, and he, you know, even David Axelrod says this, people thought this was a giveaway to poor black people. And so if we want to have public policy that addresses the needs of the entire society, we have to be far more both intentional and unapologetic about we want to address racism and we want to create a multiracial society where everybody can benefit and flourish. I would love to hear more about this. You called it the lost cause tactics in the book, but this idea of this, the way that this white fear is fueled. And I've always been fascinated by the ability of the people with the most power and the most privilege to deeply believe that they are victims and that they are being threatened. And I think the lost cause is kind of part of that. So I would love to have you share a little bit about the sort of lost cause analysis. And I don't understand entirely how this fear is fueled would love to hear you talk more about that. Reframing what were, in fact, gross atrocities reduces the toxicity of those parts of our history. 
And so, I mean, you see it more recently in terms of the, you know, January 6th, it was like, oh, it was just a capital tour that got rowdy, right? In terms of, you know, people died. People were beaten with poles. Police officers were attacked. And so that's been recast. And so that's the more recent example. The most extreme example is the Civil War itself. And so, and I've actually tried to put out into the conversation this phrase that the Civil War and the Confederates, the leaders of it, were, in fact, white supremacist mass murderers. And so there's a bill today in uh, Florida to be able to stop the renaming of Confederate or removal of Confederate statues. The glorification of the Confederacy and of Confederate leaders takes place everything from those statues to Gone with the Wind. So you have this movie, which is still one of the most popular, most profitable movies ever, which redefined and sanitized the mass murder of the equivalent of 7 million people by today's population numbers, 2% of the population, over whether or not you could buy and sell black human beings to you know, charming and dashing leading men and women in a romantic story. And so when you have, when it's, whether it's, if it's this romantic novel, that's one, it's not as concerning Versus, in fact, in fact, it's the closest thing we've had to Nazism in this country in terms of uh, white supremacy. And so that's a big part of it, is the redefining and the redetermining. So we have to be able – I did a piece in The Guardian that ran on Sunday saying that April 9th should be a national holiday. We should be commemorating the surrender of Appomattox and the triumph of those who want this to be a multiracial democracy. And then the fear piece is, which is more powerful, fear or greed? They're both extremely powerful. I actually think greed is a little more powerful. <laughs> but um, And it's just been so long. that We passed laws in 1712 that were designed to control the rapine nature of Negroes because of their barbarous ways. So fear of black people and crime and those types of elements – have been around at least since 1712 until now. It was a major part in the in the midterm elections. Crime is going up in your areas. That's therefore you have to, and it's always the person of color, usually that they're lifting up and focusing on is who you should be afraid of, and then therefore you should subside with the side that's fomenting that fear and, and resentment. So this is a room of funders. And we know that the foundation world can sometimes be very focused on measurable wins in the short term, successes that can be tied directly to the grant. But we know, and you certainly made a big case in the book about that this is really about the long game. And although there may be lots of short term wins along the way, what we're really aiming for is going to take a really long time. And in fact, you know, if we invest with a really short term mentality, we really undermine potentially those longer term goals. So would love for you to share what is your advice to funders in operating within this vehicle of foundations to to fund what is really a long, long game? The advice is to see it as a long game and stick with it. But I actually think the progress can be made more quickly than people may realize or appreciate. And that and particularly people who look at the quantification of these issues. And I used to practice law, one of our legal advisors says he he always knew what the right thing to do was by looking at what his the opposing side was doing, doing the opposite, right? And so the extent to which expanding democracy and civic participation and voting 
is fundamental to the transformation of this country can be gleaned by how much time, energy, and effort is put into stopping people from voting. And the hundreds of bills that are put forward to anything that expanded civic participation in 2020 is now under attack. Drop boxes and 24-hour voting, absentee voting, taking money from philanthropists. So since when is it a bad thing for a cash-strapped local entity to take philanthropic money to be able to do its job to meet the needs of the public better? But they are banning accepting money from philanthropic entities because Mark Zuckerberg has paid a lot of money to be able to help shore up local voting agencies. But I would say that's the fundamental most important thing. That's the lesson we took from Georgia. We did there. They had a million and a half unregistered people of color over a decade, registered more and more of them to vote. And then the entire public policy agenda of the country got transformed. And it also applies here in, in California in that we like to think that we're so progressive in terms of how all of this plays itself out. But at the same time that the presidential race was playing itself out the way it played itself out in 2020, there was a ballot measure on in California to return affirmative action to the public policy toolkit. And it was defeated. It was defeated by two and a half million votes. The side which wanted to restore affirmative action spent $25 million to two million in opposition, and yet it lost significantly. But what is notable underneath the hood of that is that if you look at the turnout numbers in 2020, 70% of eligible whites voted, 60% of African Americans, 40% of Asians, and 41% of Latinos in a state where the majority of people and the majority of voters are people of color. So that's a profound racial voter turnout gap. So that is something that philanthropists can address in a very measurable, tangible way. Who are the groups? Who are the people? What are the plans? What are the programs to increase civic participation? have a crusade for democracy so that everyone turns out at least at comparable levels or as close to universal levels as possible. One of the things I put in the book, I was thinking of is the issue around mandatory voting. At first I was like, well, that's crazy. But then I was like, we have mandatory taxes and we think that that's a public benefit, something you should actually do. So why shouldn't you actually have to vote? And so it's a very tangible, very doable, very achievable objective is to increase civic participation in voting. And that will lead to improved public policy outcomes that are far more aligned with what we'd want to see in a multiracial democracy. Now, hearing that, some people may be, some funders may be thinking, well, that sounds very political and partisan. How do we reconcile that? Voting is not a partisan issue. In a dem- I mean, what else defines a democracy other than voting? What's more fundamental issue of that? And so civic participation, and then plus, I, I did actually spend time as a lawyer, and so it's perfectly legally permissible to fund the work to be able to get as many people as possible to vote. So it really shouldn't matter. It's a problem if you're saying, we only want these particular people to vote, or these people who have this you know, partisan ideology to vote. But if the simple message is, we want everybody to vote, that should be a cause that funders should not only be afraid about, they should be enthusiastic about. That, to me, is the essence of a, of, a, of a multiracial democracy. And what about here in Los Angeles and California? You spend a lot of time in the book talking about the battleground in the Confederate states and the extraordinary leaders there like Stacey Abrams and others. But what about here in L.A. and California? I mean, are we sort of irrelevant? 
How do we really impact this larger, larger issues around multiracial democracy? Well, the same issues apply in terms of getting the increasing civic participation will influence the public policy agenda. Certainly in Southern California, so one of the profiled uh, examples is in San Diego, what Andrea Guerrero's and Lions San Diego have led this work to create civic engagement infrastructure to expand civic participation in multiple ways. So one thing they did in, in San Diego was they moved the elections. So they used to have elections in June, which was much lower turnout and much less representative of the multiracial uh, dimensions of the electorate. So they moved the elections to November. So you have higher turnout, more reflective electorate, and then that has led to the change in the composition and the public policy priorities in that regard. And so similarly, I think in Los Angeles that the people of color are inherently more progressive because they are more oppressed. And so starting with just the racial wealth gap, the profound racial wealth gap, the average white family has on average $150,000 in assets, the average black and Latino family closer to 10000 And so the desire for equality, the desire for housing and education and economic equality is inherently flowing from communities of color, but to the extent that they're not manifesting their numbers within the electorate, then you have the public policy agenda is distorted and is unnaturally conservative, actually. So whether it's Los Angeles City, Los Angeles County, State of California, the more we can have the electorate reflect who the full composition of the population is, then the public policy agenda, I would argue, would move much more rapidly towards a social justice agenda that deals with poverty and education discrimination and housing and advocacy. I loved your chapters about the liberation battle plan and the level five leaders. I loved hearing the profiles of these extraordinary women of color fighting these impossible battles in Confederate states and elsewhere. So can you share a little bit more about your analysis of this sort of level five leadership? And you mentioned it in your opening remarks that, you know, it's sort of a reimagining of leadership. And I know that it's not just about reimagining identity, although that's vital in terms of white men versus, you know, women of color and others. But I think it's also about a way that these folks are leading. So could you share more about that? So I borrowed the concept level five leader from Jim Collins, who's the business writer, and he looked at a number of corporations that had had substantial success. And so he identified this concept of a level five leader being somebody who was extraordinarily disciplined and driven by data and numbers and personally very self-effacing, but extraordinarily demanding and ambitious for their organization. And so those qualities are in fact the qualities that have been manifested in the places that have had the greatest success that I try to you know highlight, right? So you know, Tram Wynn in Virginia, Andrea here, Michelle Tremio in, in Texas. And linked to that is this piece about the tenacity of it. Some of those I didn't even realize, didn't appreciate until I was like writing the book. And I was all like, oh, these are all entrepreneurs. And I was like, oh, every single one of these places took 10 years. And it was the same leadership sticking it out, moving it forward, through thick and thin, and was able to have you know that success through 10 years. So that is, I think, an essential component of an analysis from a philanthropic standpoint is, do these conditions exist? Do you have a leader who has those qualities, who will be committed to and driven by the cause for a decade, more even when other more 
lucrative or flashier opportunities may come up. Are they building a civic engagement organization that's executing on the best practices of what we know actually works? And then do they have a very detailed data-driven plan in terms of looking at exactly where are the people's voting patterns, where are people unregistered, how do you focus on in those areas, and methodically moving forward? So those are all the core components. And so Andrea asked me when I was, you know, I was talking to her, she says, what are you most excited about in terms of the book? And I thought about it, and I was like, my entire adult life, my entire life, I've been told, well, yes, this people of color, racial justice stuff is important, but we have to win. So that all has to take a back seat because we want to be able to win. And I was like, wait a minute, we're winning. We're winning in Arizona, we're winning in Georgia, we're winning in, 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 in Virginia. We need to look at those lessons and then be able to learn from there what does it actually take. And so those are the those are some of the, I would say the core components of the places where it's actually worked. And so then if we want to make our philanthropic plans and investments going forward, can we find those leaders? Are they building those organizations? Do they have the plans that will move the work forward? I would love to hear just sort of your, your final call to action to this room full of funders who control many, many millions of dollars here in Los Angeles. I would say fundamentally it's about being bold. There's a real irony in that, on the one hand, I mean, I talk about the, well, this is back when we had actual newspapers, but the two least accountable sectors in our society were media and philanthropy. Because the media just had so much power to shape public opinion. But it's like, who's going to tell people in philanthropy that they're doing wrong because everybody needs money and those people are giving out money? And th there's an irony because there is a lot of timidity oftentimes and concern and cautiousness and should we do this or should, is this going to be a risk, et cetera, where in point of fact, philanthropists are in the best position to be bold and to take risk and to really step out. And I think it's very critical, particularly given the ferocity of the attacks that come, that we need to be fundamentally strong and unapologetic that we are going to move forward in terms of multiracial democracy. We're going to identify and back these types of leaders, and we're going to stick with them. And so those are, I think, my, my primary you know, exhortations would be be bold, back the leaders who need to have it, back them at the appropriate scale, and then the tenacity and the endurance to stick with them. I can say that I didn't go into the stories, all of the ups and downs of what happened in Georgia and the criticisms and foundations in New York, wondering is it the right thing to do and us having to weigh in to reinforce and validate now they're all happy with the outcomes in terms of climate change and public policy and whatnot. But sticking with people, I think, is the other exhortation I would leave. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Steve.